Welcome to the Build Podcast, a ministry of the Next Gen team of First Baptist Owasso. We believe the next generation, the children being raised right now, will change the world. They matter to God, to you, and to us. In this episode of Build, Dr. Walker Moore talks about rite of passage parenting. Every day you can make a difference in a life of a child. You are not alone. This is Build. Uh, my name is Walker Moore, and I am here to talk to you about rite of passage parenting and deal with four things that are missing in this generation. Before I start, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I have two sons. I have a regular son, and I have a, well, I have a normal son and a different son, okay? I don't, do you have a different child in your house that marched to a different tune? Uh, my youngest son, Caleb, is that way, and uh, I guess he's explain to you. When he's five years old, we live one block from a Reese grocery store, and he came walking to our house with a stack of free apartment guides in his hand like this. All he could carry. He's carrying up the, up the road like this. I said, Caleb, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to sell free apartment guides. And I know you're five years old, the world free. You, don't under, you can't read, but the word free means you don't have to pay anything for them. But, that, but that, listen, Caleb, I'm talking now, okay? The second thing, we live in a residential neighborhood. No one in our neighborhood needs an apartment guides. And I try to explain the difference between apartment dwellers and homeowners, okay? I'm trying, and so I'm being a good father, trying to explain all this. I said, now take them back and put them in the rack. He goes, but Dad! I said, what? He said, this is my second load. He reached in his pocket and pulled out a whole handful of quarter. He already sold a whole stack of them to our neighbors, so guess what? You can't sell free apartment guys to homeowners, okay? I didn't know you could, but uh, now I know. He's the kid that goes to school. It's first day of kindergarten. And I get a call from the principal, Mr. Moore, we need you to come and talk to us about your son, Caleb. Now, what can a kid do in a kindergarten for first day making a principal call? So I get in my car, go to the school, and the principal said, well, uh, Mr. Moore, your son was in there, and son Caleb raises his hand. And the teacher says, Caleb, what do you want? He said, teacher, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? <laughs> now, this is Tulsa Public School, okay? And the teacher goes, um, 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 put your hand down, put your hand down, put your hand down. And so he put his hand down, and all of a sudden, he raised his hand back up again. And he said, what now? He said, you know, if you don't, you're going to hell. <laughs> That's my different son, okay? Now he's pastor of First Baptist Church, Catoosa, down the road. Uh, but growing up, I had a very difficult speaking, and when I went to school, they labeled me special ed. Uh, and so I spent my first six years of school in special ed classes. In high school, we went to regular classes. I hated that because... Uh, you have to color within the lines, uh, regular classes. Special ed, you didn't have to color within the lines. And, and I was having difficulty. And in high school, God called me to preach. And uh, everybody was surprised, not, and as much as I was, you know. And my pastor told me, when you go, uh, you need to go to college, you need to go to seminary, and you take Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and when you get your master of theology, you come back and preach in our church. And I said, thank you. And I'm thinking, I can't take English, let alone Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. Now, I have to tell you, I've not been to seminary, okay? Uh, it took me 17 years to get my bachelor's degree. Uh, but if you go to seminary, you have to use my textbooks I've written to get your master's of theology. So I think that God has a sense of humor in that, that uh, uh, he uses those books and stuff. But uh, when I surrendered to ministry, I knew it would be hard to find a place to preach because they couldn't understand me. And I went to a speech pathologist learning, trying to form words and stuff and to talk. And a friend of mine said, I know a church that hadn't had a pastor in a while, and you could go preach next Sunday. Would you like to preach there? And it was Second Baptist Church of Linnaeus, Missouri. Now, anybody know where Linnaeus, Missouri is at? Well, it's 60 miles past the Great Commission. You go in the world, 60 miles farther, and you hit Linnaeus, Missouri. Population 300. That first church, second church. I didn't get first church. I got second church. I went there has a total of nine members in the church, and the youngest one was 69, the oldest one was 81. Now, here I am, just a young high school student, and uh, preached my first sermon. But what I did not know when I went there, it was an African-American church. So I had never been in an African-American church. I've never been to one. You know what they do during the service? They yell at you. Yeah, they yell at you. See, I can't go home the Frozen Chosen. We... And they, they're stomping, dancing, yelling at you, you know. And so I started preaching, and, and uh, the ladies of the church are in charge of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? If you're the Holy Spirit leaves, they're the one that lets you know. And they do it by what they call the lazy eight. They take their hanky, and they go like this. They start going, help him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. 
Well, about five minutes of my sermon, I saw ten hankies. Somebody was double timing, you know, and they were going, Help him, Jesus! Help him, Jesus! Help him, Jesus! Okay? So if you don't think that's disturbing, try it next Sunday with your pastor at your church, okay? <laughs> and see what he does. But uh, at the end, they uh, came to me and, and one of the deacons said, We need to talk to you. And I said, What's that? And he said, uh, Well, uh, we had to have a pastor in ten years here. Community is dwindling down. We're the last few people left in town. And uh, we would like to call you as our pastor. Would you pray about it? I said, okay. All right, I'll be your pastor. And uh, in five minutes, I was pastor of the Second Baptist Church of Lance, Missouri. And the more and more I spoke, the clearer and clearer my tongue became. And God began to do a work in my life. I stepped into what He called me to do. I'll tell you that story because I need to tell you another story to get to this. I was asked to preach at the all-black pastor. After two years, I was asked to come and preach at the all-black pastor conference in Los Angeles. Well, I get there, there's 10,000 pastors in the convention center there. I get up to preach, and over here, tell me your name, Ben. Okay, right where you're sitting, the guy started yelling, Fix it, brother, fix it! Well, I didn't know what fix it meant. Something broken, but I couldn't figure out what it is. The flowers fell over, is the, you know, something going on, my microphone not working. So he stood up and started yelling louder, Fix it, brother! Screaming, fix it, in the middle of my message. And then I got it. I, th- I think I know what's wrong. I think my zipper's undone. And I didn't, how do you check your zipper in front of 10,000 people? And it's real easy. You go, you go, and God. <laughs> and it was fine, so I kept my way. Now he started doing jumping jacks, man. He started waving his arms, screaming at me, yelling, fix it, brother. Well, what he meant was, I stopped, I said to the moderator, what does he mean? He says, well, fix it in an African-American church is that all of a sudden he heard a truth he's never heard before. The Holy Spirit began to speak to him about a truth he's never seen in Scripture. And what he wants is for you not to go on the next point. He wants you to park it right there to expound upon it, to expand upon it. He wants you to fix that truth for him. He wants you to hug it all you can because he just caught that truth for the first time. So many ways we'd go with this conference. And if I touch something that you want me to expand upon, yell, yell, fix it. Don't yell, help him, Jesus. Okay, that really, that was my low self-esteem thing, you know. So uh, it's on that. Okay, what we're going to talk about is four things missing in this generation here that if we don't put these four things in, we will never raise up responsible, capable, self-reliant adults. See, we're not to raise children. We're to raise adults, okay? So I'm going to start out with a very simple question. Did Jesus ever sin? Are you sure? Well, according to the Scriptures here, okay, i got my Bible here. Luke, the second chapter, verse 41 it says, uh, and when he became twelve, he went there according to the custom of the feast. And we're turning to spend the full number of days according to the, uh, what's that word there? Custom. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it. Okay? It says that he went to Jerusalem, Luke's second chapter, verse 40, 41. He decided to stay back on his own in Jerusalem, and he did not tell his parents. Jesus dumped his parents. That's what he did. Now, did Jesus ever sin? If you dumped your parents, is that a sin? Mary and Joseph started walking, they walked a day's journey, it says. Okay. Now, when was the last time you walked a day's journey? You get up in the morning and you walk and walk and walk a full day's journey. Now, being a missionary, I've done that many times. Just a few weeks, well, now it's about a, two months ago now, right before my surgery, uh, I went to Jordan and to Israel, and I hiked Jordan and Israel with my son. And we'd walk uh, average 13 miles a day, hiking in the heat and going, we climbed Masada and many other things. And we uh, just hiked across Jerusalem and, and uh, Israel. And uh, we hiked the Red Sea and then hiked to Petra. And we hiked what's called the Wadi Rum. I know what's like to hike a day's journey. And all of a sudden, Mary, like all mother, has that sixth sense about your children. You know, uh, how, many, how many are mothers in here? Okay, let me see. Okay, all of a sudden, you know, you, you, know, you go, where's the children? Have you ever said that? Where's the children? My, my wife goes, where's the boys? Like I said, who cares? <laughs> you know? No, no, something wrong. They're too quiet. Something, And I don't know where she gets this sense, six sense in, but she knows there's something missing. And all of a sudden, Mary starts asking all the relatives, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen? No, I haven't seen Jesus. I haven't seen Jesus. Then she went to acquaintance, you know. Have you seen Jesus? No. Then she starts talking to a stranger. Have you seen Jesus? He's about this high. Goes in the dark. Wears a white robe, okay? You know, and she starts, and no one sees seen Jesus. Because guess where Jesus is? He's back in Jerusalem. How far back is it? A day's journey. So now Mary has to do what? Stay the night, get the next morning, head back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. 
How well do you think Mary slept that night? What do you think Mary did during the night? You think she prayed? How do you pray that prayer? Dear God, I lost the Savior of the world. What, Mary, what, what? How do you tell God that you lost the Savior of the world, you know? Mary, of all the women on earth, blessed art thou, but I thought you'd take a little more care of Jesus, you know? And see, I don't know how you... But now they have to go back. So they have to walk a day's back through Jerusalem. Walk. I know that walk, okay? I've walked that road, and I know it's up and down. Up to Jerusalem, it's all uphill. It's climbing up, 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 up to Jerusalem. And they're walking, climbing like that, and they finally get there. And the Bible says, how many days did they search for him? After three days, after three days, they finally found Jesus. And the Bible says he was in the temple. And let me just read it to you. When they find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. It came about after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teacher, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. But when they saw him, they weren't so amazed. Because the Scripture says this, When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, I wish I could do a Jewish mother imitation. Okay, I can't, okay? She said, Son, why have you treated us to behold? I've been looking for you day and night and night and day. We've been worried to death. Y'all pay, you know. And she, would, she just ripped into Jesus. Why have you treated us this way? For over three days, she's been anxious, worried that Jesus, something happened to him. What does Jesus say to his mom? Now he says, uh, where were you looking for me? Did you not know where I was? Now, if I had been a mother looking for my child three days and my son turns to me and goes, Mom, didn't you know where I was? Weren't you thinking? You know? You know what would happen to me if I said that? I wouldn't see my mom for three days until the swelling went down out of this eye. Maybe you could see out a little bit. Why wasn't it a sin that Jesus could dump his parents, make them walk four days, make them worry, because she says we're worried to death, finally found him, and he turns around and then asks her a question. He turns around and asks her a question. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know where I was? say Jesus never sinned. Why wasn't that a sin? Well, we say Jesus, he kick a dog and get away with it, okay? He's Jesus. So why, why wasn't it sin? Well, number one answer is what? Because he's out doing his Heavenly Father's business. So how many got teenagers in here? You may got teenagers? Okay, I'm going to teach your teenagers they can come home anytime they want to, okay? They can stay out all night for one or two days. And when they come home and you go, where have you been? All they have to say to you, Susan, is this. We've been out doing the Heavenly Father's business. It worked for Jesus. Would that work in your house? No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work in my house either. So and that's, that can't be the answer. You know what the answer is? It said he has to, huh? Well, but there's even more to it than that. It says, according to the custom feast at 12 years age, he has to go to the feast of Passover. Who goes to the feast of Passover? All Jewish adults. So Jesus was a child, and at 12 years of age, he became an, a man. So now that he's a man, he has to go to where? The feast of Passover. He has to take on his own responsibility for his life and his religion. Now, let me share this with you. Why 12 years of age? I thought the Jewish faith was 13. You do your rite of passage, bar mitzvah, your bar mitzvah at 13 years of age. That is true unless you've been born out of wedlock. If you're born out of wedlock, you have to do it at 12 years of age. You do it a year early. Because Joseph and uh, Mary weren't married, Jesus has to go, according to the custom of the feast, he has to go a year early up to there. The last 11 years he's been home with a babysitter. Can you imagine being Jesus' babysitter? And babysitter parents go home, how was the kid? Oh, Jesus, perfect. <laughs> been on time, ate his vegetable, put his toys up, you know, but his brothers and sisters. Can you imagine, brother, you think you're perfect, don't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So now, all of a sudden, Jesus, okay, is no longer as an adult. Can he stay on his own in Jerusalem as an adult? He took on his, he, he made a decision, stayed behind. He, he took on adult consequences, okay? And, and so, what did he, where did he eat? For those three days. A 12-year-old boy, where did he go eat? As a man, we always find a place to eat, don't we? I don't think many of you miss a meal, do you? 
Every day you find a place to eat. Where did he sleep for those three days while his parents were looking for him? Guess what? As a man, he knows where to go find a place to sleep. He took on adult responsibility and adult consequences for his life. Jesus was a man by the time he was eight years, uh, 12 years old, and he moved into adult world. And when his parents found him, he submitted himself to his parents' authority and finally died. He went home with them. Now, when did you become adult in America? What age did you become adult in America? 21. You think that's true? Anybody else got a different age? 18, okay? 18, you know, military. Another age. 16. Get your driver's license. The answer is 26. Your parents. You can't rent a car at the airport until you're 25. They say you're not old enough. And your parents have to take care of your insurance until you're 26. So for you to step out on your own to be full-fledged, responsible adult, guess what? The, the government says 26 years of age. So all of a sudden we've got a generation here. They don't know when they grow up. You know, and that's the number one. Every child, according to Jeremiah 6.16, it's called the rite of passage. It's called the ancient path. Every little boy wants to be a man. You know that? Every little boy. He wants to step into his dad's world. He wants to be invited by his dad to come in. I was working on an old Ford one day that uh, another deacon had given me, and transmission was leaking, so I was underneath of it. And Caleb, five years old, bends over and goes, Hi, Dad. Hi, Caleb. And he asked me a question. Can I help? When a boy asks, can I help to his dad, what is he asking his dad? Can I step into the man world with you? I said, get down here, scoot in. He scoot in, and I let a little bit of transmission flow down and land on him like that. I said, oh, man, look at you. You look like a man. Now I got trans-. And I said, hold the screwdriver. And he holds the screwdriver like this, laying right beside me. My wife walks by. He goes, look at me, Mom. I'm helping Dad. Every little girl wants to be what? A woman. And she will get on and try on mom's high heels at a very early age and try to walk around those high heels and wear mama dresses and lipstick and all that kind of stuff, you know. And we all want to be moved into the adult world because every place I go in the world, and I work all around the world, I go to the Kunas, okay, in, in, uh, in Panama, and guess what? They have a rite of passage. Young boys and young girls move into a rite of passage very early on. I go to the, the Kermajongs in Uganda. Guess what? By the time they're eight years old, the boys are moving to the adult world. And every culture, if you leave a culture by itself, it naturally will provide for their children a rite of passage. But we come to America, there's nowhere for us to move into the adult world. So what happened is, we have created a thing. What did I do with it? Did I eat it? What happened is, is that we have this here, we have a child, we have an adult, and we create this thing called adolescent, where you're neither child nor adult. And we know that's not biblical, because Corinthians says, I thought a child, spoke a child, put away a childish thing and became an adult, and we step into the adult world. But what we're doing, we're separating the child from adult. Now it used to be 13, 18 years of age. It's now called 9 to 26. It's the official uh, definition of adolescence. And also we've got nine-year-old girls looking like 21-year-old people, and we've got 21-year-old people looking like nine-year-old girls, okay? And they're vice versa stuff, and we have this confusion going on because we don't know when we become adult. So let me take a little fictional character. His name is Johnny. Johnny is in the, uh, oh, he's in the third grade, and he wants to be a man. So the first word, the first thing they use is usually language. They'll start using their adult language. So Johnny goes to the playground, and he stands out there, and he lets go of the F word. Everybody goes, oh, look at Johnny. Oh, wow. And Johnny just wants to be what? Grown up like his dad. And most children would, have you ever been to elementary school lately? They cuss like sailors there. And I tell you, it's, it's getting a nasty place out there. But they're, they're out there, and they're trying to act like grown up. But Johnny gets in trouble, and so he gets, you know, said, you can't do that. Johnny says, well, I can't use adult language to become an adult. So he gets in junior high. Johnny wants to become a man still, so he takes up smoking. And I've seen him at junior high. He gets to the building. He's six foot one, weighs 35 pounds. Got a big old belt. Trying to prove that he's a man out there. And his little girlfriend, she's smoking. She has her bra backwards to fit better. She's smoking out there. Smoking gay, and they're trying to act so grown up. And guess no one ever says to them they're what? 
Then they get to high school and, and they said, okay, we'll take drinking. That's, that's the next adult activity. And they think if they collect enough, enough adult activity in their basket, one day somebody will look at you and go, oh, look at Johnny, you're an adult. You do this and this and this and this. But no one ever said that to Johnny. And he moves into having sex and all that kind of stuff. And so a rite of passage is given to a child by his parents. See, it takes a parent to close down the childhood, okay, and move into adulthood. So here's Johnny struggling, 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 trying to find out when do I grow up. This generation has chosen tattoos as the way, as a rite of passage. You go to OBU, every child over there at OBU has got a tattoo, seems like, you know, scripture verse, Jesus, you know, a little cross down here. They all have that. Guess why? Because it says to the world, look at me, I'm grown up. And we have missed out on what it is to give our children rite of passage. So we, we see that this whole thing of, we call it youth ministry coming on in our church. And guess what youth ministry does? It prolongs this. It should be called the emerging adult ministry. We need to get rid of youth ministry and move our children becoming a full-fledged adult and teach them how to take on adult responsibility and adult consequences for our lives. 1 Timothy 4.12 gives us the things that says that you're adult. You have adult speech, adult conduct, you know, adult love, adult purity, and it lists the things there that you says you're an adult there. So we, we see this whole world going on, and all of a sudden this generation does not know when do I grow up. So guess what? Time Magazine front page says, when do they grow up? You got 30 years old. Do you know, I think I heard a statistic, 80% of those who graduated from Harvard moved back home with their parents. They didn't allow parents to go to uh, orientation anymore. You know, you used parents to come with you to, high, to college orientation. They don't allow that anymore. You know why? Because the parents won't let their children grow up. So we got a problem here to that. So we need a rite of passage. So that's the first thing you're missing. The second thing you're missing is called a significant task. A significant task is described, if you don't do it, a large number of people will suffer. Okay? How many remember the TV show The Waltons? Okay? If John Boyd didn't plant the corn, what would happen to you? They would get hungry. Okay? Their family would starve because John Boyd... Is that a significant task? And he's probably, what, nine years old if he didn't plant the corn? What happened if they didn't chop the wood down? Ben didn't chop the wood. Their family had no fuel to cook with or to, you know, uh, to keep warm with. Okay, what happened if Mary Ellen didn't milk the cow? I was in Kansas City and the guy goes, explode? <laughs> no, it would dry up and wouldn't give milk to a calf to get. And so what happened? Every child in an agricultural society has a significant task. If they don't do their job, job guess what? Their family will suffer. They give them worse in value. What do you do? Well, I'm in charge of planting the corn and building barns, and I'm in charge of the crops out here, and I'm in charge of the, you know, and every child had a significant task from the time they could walk. They had a significant task, and their significant task increased as they got older, and guess what? It moved them straight into adulthood. They didn't have to have a rite of passing. It became a part of the significant task they took on, and you know, in, uh, by law, Almost every child in Denver, in Denver, in Delaware, you could get married at 10 years of age without your parent consent because they consider you an adult. Most every child, by the time they're 12 years old during the Walton time, had every skill for living without, they could be dropped anywhere in the woods and they could survive on their own. They had every skill for living as adults by the time they're 12 years old. Now, how many 12 year old you know now that you can drop off and they can survive and take care and plant and you chop wood down, catch animals and food and all that kind of stuff. I'm 67. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> you know, But guess what? In that day, everybody had a significant task. So what does your children do today if they don't do it? A large number of people will suffer. Have we got children? What's your children's significant task? If they don't do it, a large number of people suffer. That's moving toward a significant task. I mean, Mama yeah. may pick it up eventually. Yeah. Like no, Mama don't pick it up, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so what happened is today we have to recreate what we call significant tasks in our homes different than we had before. So I'm going to give you two of them I use in my family, okay? Number one, uh, my, first, my oldest son, Jeremiah, 
when he's nine years old, started becoming in charge of the bills for our house. We started out with the electric bill. When he's nine years old, I put a little basket out. The electric bill came in. I put it in the little basket there. And his job was to get my checkbook, write the check, take it in the register, subtract it, and, and tally out what was in the bank. And then on Friday night, when we have our family business meeting, he would present me the electric bill. And there I'd sign the check and give it back to him. His job was to mail it. He was in charge of the electricity of our house. Now, if he didn't do it, his job, guess what would happen? Our VCR went dead. I mean, you know, and the refrigerator go dead. How did he get it back on? Guess what? He had to take care of it, and it came out of his life. Whatever the fee or the penalty was, he had to pay for it himself. If he didn't do his job, he had to take care of it. So then I said to him, this is what we normally pay in electricity. If you could drop the electricity down, I'll give you the difference. In fact, you can make money by doing the electrical bill. And I did not know I created an electric Nazi in our house, but, you know, <laughs> who left the light on over here, okay? I tell you what, our bill's going up. You walk out of the room, you turn off the light, okay? The switch, it's not that hard. You see, up, down, up, down. All you do, got to hit it there. Let's keep the light off here, okay? And I'm going to tell you, he worked hard at getting the electrical bill down, and he made money doing that. Now, the good thing about it, he graduated college debt-free, paid cash, paid cash for his wedding, paid cash for his house, and uh, he's been debt-free his entire life. He knows, in fact, when I moved to Budapest, Hungary to live as a missionary, at 15 years old, he stayed in the United States, ran our household, and was able to take care of everything and manage the house as a grown adult. Now, there's some downsides of that. When he got married... I was on the mission field. I said, Dad, you need to come home. I said, why? He said, I'm getting married on July the 27th. I said, why July the 27th? He said, it's the first day of off-season rates for Florida hotels. Okay? <laughs> I'm not paying full price, okay? I'm gonna, I, and, and I could tell you many stories, but I tell you what, the kid's so financially savvy. Where did he learn that from? A nine-year-old electric bill. Because you start transferring in other ways. My youngest son, Caleb, my, my different son, he was in charge of maintenance of the vehicles. Okay, You ever see the little, the little book that comes with your car? Have you ever read that book? I'm going to tell you, every five minutes you're supposed to be checking something on your car. The belt, the transmission, the oil, you know, and on and go. The blinker fluid, you need to check that three times a week, you know. And it's just all kinds of stuff that goes on. And, and so I got Caleb, I said, I'm going to give you a set of keys to the car. Eight years old, here's your key to the Ford, here's your key to the, the Dodge. And he had the keys. I said, every Friday you can go out. And I taught him how to put the key in. Internal odometer, and his job was to track the mileage from whatever the tire rotation, oil change, whatever it was. He was supposed to make sure that the car is serviced at the right time in the right way. So every Friday, he couldn't wait to Friday to put that key in that car and turn that on, and ding, 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 ding. You see the light, wrote the numbers down. And Friday night, he said, We've got 1,000 more miles before tire rotation. He said, We've got 800 miles before the oil change. Then he'll come to me and says, Dad, can you make an appointment? I'll say, drive me Saturday, not make an appointment. Can you drive me Saturday to Jiffy Lube? Uh, we need to get the oil changed. And so I would drive him Jiffy Lube. He'd get out of his little folder. He'd walk in there and get 10W30 pins oil. And then I don't hope nobody works for Jiffy Lube. Anybody here works for Jiffy Lube? Because in the middle of every time they do your oil change, what happens? What do they do? They bring out something to show you. Look at your air filter. Look at your air filter, Okay. And, I, and they show it to me. I said, I'm not in charge of the vehicle maintenance. He is, okay? Look at the eight-year-old boy. Look at your, you know, he goes, no, we've got 500 more miles to go. He hasn't marked down one. He needs to change it, stuff like that, you know. And he's been cha- he's in charge of the vehicle maintenance and take So you ask the little boy, what do you do at your house? Well, I'm in charge of the vehicle. You know, we have to change the tires every 2,000 miles, rotate them, you know, so they last longer, and we've got to do the oil change. And, you know, they say every, you know, 3,000 miles, but, you know, that's not, that's old law. You know, you go about 5,000 miles on oil change. And, I mean, you know, that's, they were important in our house. They had significance in our house. Nobody else was doing what they were doing in their household. They were in charge of things and taking care of things. And became responsible. Caleb, at 16 years of age, bought a car that had a rebuilt motor in it, and the head came with a guarantee. If you do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and your motor goes out, we'll replace it free. 
Well, he was in San Antonio. The motor went out. He called the people. He said, well, there's something. You didn't use the right oil or something. He goes, no, well, let me fax you everything. He faxed out everything that he did. He had everything he was supposed to do on it. They had to come and pick the car up, take it to Tulsa, and put a brand-new motor in it because he had the documentation that he did. right. Now, where did he learn that at? Eight-year-old with a key learned vehicle maintenance, okay? There's things that we can do to put in our children's lives today that simulates what they did on a farm, and they have a significant task. That makes sense? Now, so what happened, Jesus had a significant task. If he was temple that day, he'd been out of God's will. What do you call it when you're out of God's will? Sin. If Jesus had not been in the temple day, he would have sinned. If there, he would sin, there'd been no savior. There's no savior, there's no salvation. The whole world died and go to hell if a twelve year old boy went in the temple that day. Would you call that a significant task? I put it right up there on one of the top ones, you know. So what happened? Jesus at twelve years old had a rite of passage, he was a man, and he had a significant task. We don't have those kind of things anymore. There's not a hardly a child at twelve years old anymore in a modern day America. Now other part of the world, so all over the world they have it. But come to the United States, we've got a 12-year-old. They can't even find their way out of the house, you know, and they have no significant task, and they wonder why they can't find themselves, and they end up, what, glued to a TV and a video game, and they just uh, they come numb to life, and they have no worth, no value. Now, there's one thing that gives a child both of them. I've taken 13,000 students on a rite of passage journey to 52 countries. I've taken kids all around the world. You know, this uh, is my 46th year of taking kids on a rite of passage journey. I've done it for a long time. I've seen the transformation when you take a 13-year-old and you take them to the middle of the jungles on the, in the Darien of Panama and they've got to reach a tribe for Christ and live in a hut. Uh, the mosquitoes they have to live in a mosquito net at night in a hammock and their job is to catch food for the tribe for us to eat and they have a significant task. They don't do their job. You know what happens to a 13-year-old that put in a position like that? He rises up to it because it's in them to do those kind of things. In fact, when they come home, they suffer because there's no... Here they've been really significant for the last 30 days and they're making a difference in the world and they've been treated like adults and they have adult tasks and responsibilities and duties and they come home and the youth group says to them, your big task today is bring pops for the boys and girls bring the chips. And they're going, that's not a real significant task. They go back to the mission field. Like I said, I've taken 13,000 students on this journey. You know... uh, Four years ago, six years ago was my 40th anniversary. You know what I did for my 40th anniversary? How many remember what I did? I set the world record for mountain climbing. I became the first man to ever climb Mount Kilimanjaro with a cross to 19,345 feet. I summit Kilimanjaro carrying a 12-foot cross, 12-foot long, 6-foot wide. But thank Jesus for allowing me to take all these students around the world as a rite of passage and show them what it is to be adult and move into the adult world. If you've got a child, you need to go to our booth out there and look at and talk to the people out there if they're still there about how your kids can go on a rite of passage trip. And we've got trips going to Mexico soon and trips will go. You know, we just came back from the Gambia, Africa. We took a doctor and we took uh, about 20 students, 13, 14, 15 year old. What did a student, 13-year-old do in Gambia, Africa? Did you know they were running the clinic, giving shots, taking given malaria tests and pregnancy tests and run the pharmacy, all done by 13, 14, 15-year-olds. They were doing the entire medical work with the doctor doing their job. A 13-year-old can do that? You bet they can. You give them the chance, they'll step up to it. You know, who wouldn't want to be a doctor at 14 years old in the jungles of Africa? Man, they didn't want to go home. They would cry. No, no, we don't want to go home because there's nothing for us to do at home. There's no significant task. Here we got a purpose. We get up every morning. And today I treated 127 patients, one student told me. And they had a significant task. So I think rite of passage and a significant task today is combined in one word. It's called missions. And we need to get kids on the mission field. There's a rite of passage. The third thing that's missing is called logical consequences. God told Adam and Eve, if they ate the tree, they would what? They would die. So they ate, and what did God say? How many times I told you, I told you once, I told you a thousand times, I told you over and over not to eat of the tree. Is that what God said? He said, no, you eat, you die. So they ate, they died. That's the logical consequences. Today, our kids have no logical consequences. They can, there's nothing they get penalized for. So what we need is we need to uh, teach our children what logical consequences are. Let me give you an example. 
Uh, I have two things in my house. I have valuable things, and I have non-valuable things. So what do you do with valuable things in your house? Put them up, take care of them, protect them. What do you do with non-valuable things? In our house, we redeem them. Okay. So I said to my two sons when they were very early, there are valuable things and non-valuable things. If you have something valuable, uh, guess what we do with it? We take it to goodwill because goodwill takes non-valuable things and make them valuable again. That's what they do. So if I come to your bedroom and you have toys all over the floor, what do you, how, what do you deem those toys to be? Non-valuable. So what, guess what we're going to do with those toys? We're going to collect them up. I'll drive you to Goodwill, and you go in and redeem those to make them valuable again by giving them good Goodwill. So they signed the contract. I signed the contract. Anything left on the floor, clothes, like that, you know. After a certain time at night, if it's not picked up, you have deemed them non-valuable. I came in, and there was a brand-new Nintendo game scattered all over the floor. I just bought it. I think I paid $154 for it. And I said, boys, come in here. Guess what I found? I found a non-valuable, non-valuable but dad, but dad, please, dad, please, dad, one dad, please, dad, please, dad, you know. I said, let's gather up. No, dad, please, dad, please, one more chance, one more chance. I said, pick it up. You have deemed it non-valuable. Get in the car. We're driving to Goodwill, and my boy's hands are on the back. I say, please, dad, one more chance, please. We'll never do We promise we cross our heart. We'll never do it again. And then we had the death of March going from the car to Goodwill. No, no, no. And we're marching in, and... Oh, my goodness, you know, it's, it, it was horrible to see. And we gave away the brand-new Nintendo game. Best $154 ever spent in my life. They now know what? There are logical consequences, okay? And I am guarantee it began to work in others' lives. Now, there's a downside to that. Uh, I, I worked at First Baptist Church for ten and a half years downtown Tulsa. We have to dress in suits every day. And I went to J.C. Penney, bought me a new suit coat. I was driving my driveway, and my pastor called me and said, Walker, can you get quickly to the hospital? Uh, there's a couple in our church in an accident. They're taking a seat at Francis. Can you meet the ambulance there? So I just opened the door, threw my coat in on a chair, and I got in the car, drove back out, went to the hospital, came home later, and my two boys are waiting for me at the door. <laughs> Dad, 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 guess what we found? Guess what we found? I said, what did you all find? They said, we found a non-valuable suit coat. Can you drive us to Goodwill? <laughs> so I'm driving Goodwill. I believe some please get us one more time. There's an emergency game like that. And we go in Goodwill and give away my, I think I paid $250 for this coat, gave away my brand new suit coat. I came home, dropped them off, went back to Goodwill and bought it back. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that, okay? That's just the logical consequences. So what happened is, that we got to teach our children there are consequences to their behavior. If there's no consequences, there's no value. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you burn. Oh, you've deemed it what? Hurts, okay? You've put a value to it. And we have now a generation that has no values because there's no consequences to their behaviors. Make sense? So there's a couple other things I'm keep you real quick. Uh, no, no. We do, we do we contract for clothes, and in my book I talk about uh, the different contracts and stuff. You can look in there. Then I have a workbook called Write a Passage Workbook. You have to go on Amazon to get it. But in it, it has uh, the contracts already that I use to print it out, and you use it. But, for instance, uh, my kids went to a different school than was our neighborhood. So I contract them. I pay $15 a month to get it from my house to the school and from the school back to my house. I take care of it for the month. My job is to get you to school and get you back. If you mess up, then you're on your own. Well, one day Jeremiah come in. He was in seventh grade. He said, I've got a detention. I don't care because that's what? Detention is a logical consequence. You pay for it. If you do something wrong, you pay for it. And uh, he said, I was sharpening my pencil, and I was flipping it in my hand like this. All of a sudden, accidentally, it stuck in the ceiling. And as it was quivering, the teacher came in and saw it quivering in the ceiling, and it got attention. And I said, okay, that's no big deal. If you stick a pencil in the ceiling, you stay after school. He said, you have to come pick me up. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, that's a different story. I said, then I already not pay for tomorrow's bus ride, for the bus to take you to school and bring you back. He said, yes, sir. I said, I take care of my responsibility as a father. Now, you messed up. You have to figure out how you're going to get home on your own. 
He goes, what am I going to do? I said, well, just walk the three miles across two highways. You know, it's just, you know, my wife, you're not doing that. You know, and, and I could I could see her. She was driving her Buick, following him instant along as he walking his little lunchbox, you know. I said, no, you can renegotiate with the teacher. I said, you can call a taxi cab. I can get you a number. I picked, picked my number out of the yellow pages, gave it to him. And he goes to school. We're not knowing how he's going to get home. About 3 o'clock came by, and the bus showed up, and it went by, and the sun was not on it. My wife just became a nervous wreck. Where is he? Every time a car went by, is that him? Is that him? Is that him? I don't know. If the janitor brought him home, I don't know. You know, it's like that. And 4 o'clock went by, and 5 o'clock went by, and 5.20, here comes a taxi cab pulling to our driveway. I just watched him. He got out and got his little zipper on it, you know, and the little cowboy, and he pays the, the taxi cab, and he comes in. I said, hey, how's school today? He goes, $5.10. <laughs> so now, guess what? A detention has a lot of consequences. What's a lot of consequences? $5.10. A week later, his little brother comes home and says, hey, Dad, I got detention. I don't get upset over that. That's, that's If you do something wrong and the teacher gives you detention, that's what you get. He said, can I talk to you? And I said, what's that? He said, can I hire you to come pick me up to school tomorrow? <laughs> I said, what, what is it worth to you? He said, I'll pay you $5.10 for you come pick me up. I said, go get your money, and we'll set a deal here. So he brings out his piggy bank, gave me $5.10. I went to pick him up the next day to school and come back. I'm going to tell you, the school system doesn't like this. Because one day Caleb without, went with his lunch, and the principal called me and said, Mr. Moore, you need to go home, get your son's lunch, and bring it to school. I said, no, I don't. I said, if he doesn't take his lunch, he doesn't eat. Well, we can't do that. I said, I can do that. I'm the father, okay? So uh, I did not go get his lunch. I said, first of all, he'll have the best meal. He'll, he'll sell free apartment guys. He'll trade. He'll he's, he's the best. He will have the best meal ever, you know? Well, he went. I, I forgot that. And like three days later, there was an envelope from Tulsa Public School System and I opened up. And it was a bill. And they went ahead and fed my son and charged me for the meal. I refused to pay it because I did not authorize them to feed my child. I understand what they're saying, but what did Caleb learn that day? Caleb learned if I forget my lunch, the government will take care of me. There's no logical consequences for leaving your lunch at home. How many days do you think he would forget his lunch before you actually start taking it again? It wouldn't be very long, I guarantee. I know Caleb. He'd, he'd probably one day, two days at the max, he would forget his lunch. I guarantee you'd have it the next day. See, because you learn from logical consequences. That moves you forward in learning. There's no consequences. There's no learning. And you have to learn from logical consequences. And we've talked about clothing and everything else. Why don't you get to the last thing real quick? I'm running out of time. First thing that was missing is write a passage. Second thing was a significant task. The third thing missing this generation is logical consequences, and we need to contract with our children for that. And the last thing is grace. Anybody here has a checkbook? Who has a checkbook on you? Anybody got a checkbook? T tell me your name. Pam. Pam, can you pull a checkbook out and make a check to Walker Moore for $1 million? Yeah. Yeah. Come on, sister. <laughs> Would I? Because your bank probably has a silly rule that you have to make more deposits than you do withdrawals. Is that what your bank says? They like it better. They like it better that way. You know what? There's one thing that bounces worse than checks, and that's a child. Because what happens when a child has more withdrawals than deposits in their life, they bounce. We call it rebellion. A rebellious child is always a child that has a grace deficit. In their life. Now, say, what do you mean by grace? Well, growing up, used to be naturally, we had grandma and grandpa live in the house or live next door. Remember the Waltons? Grandma and grandpa lived in the house. Grandparents are grace. Guess what? Parents are law. And, and mom and dad sit down, shut up. But grandparents, guess, guess what? You're the best thing ever walked this earth here. And we speak into them worth and value. I get to do that now. I have three grandsons. And I'm loving that grace side, you know. And, uh, so what happened is all of a sudden we now become a 
an industrial society, no longer do we live near grandparents. Most of us don't. My grandparents lived 400 miles away when we had our kids live in Tulsa. My mom was 400. My wife was more than that. And they came once or twice a year. We never got to see them that much. They never got to be the grace deposit in our house. And we needed somebody to give grace to our children. So we went to a lady named Lucille Hodges. And she was a widow. And she became the best grace deposit we've ever seen. She never missed a ball game. I remember my son was playing at Nathan Hill High School, and he shot for the basket, missed it about 20 feet. And she stood up screaming, You almost got it! You almost had it! You know, and she's screaming, and she was there. That was so good, man. I almost thought you had it there, you know. He missed it by 20 feet, you know. The coach is yelling at him, you know. And she was at every game, every birthday party, everything we had. And she was one that gave him grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. And even though I was law, she gave him enough grace to handle life. Because you have more law than grace, you have a rebellious child. And so we need to put grace into our children. Now let me give you a second way. We as parents and teachers, anybody here school teachers, anything like that? Okay, school teacher, the greatest thing you do is give grace to your children. I'm going to show you how to do it. My son Caleb always had the best grade in a teacher that gave him significant tasks. Caleb, if you give him says every day after class, you, you wipe off this chalkboard, he made sure he's in that class. Anytime a teacher gave him significant tasks, he received it as love. When he didn't get a significant task, he didn't do very well in the class. But this is how you do grace. Number one, you look him in the eye when you talk to a child. Anytime you put grace, you look in the eye. The second thing, you use their name. You always use their name when you speak to a child. The third thing you use, you use the most important word. What's the most important word to us as human beings? What's the most important word? Love? Everybody says that. That's not it. Huh? I would say name. Name? Okay, name is important. The word is because. If I say, uh, you got children? Okay, you're getting that. You know what, Chad? You don't know what I do. I said, Chad, but you're a good dad because you've taken time as a father to come here and sit in classes learning how to become a better father and speak into your children. And I admire for you spending your Sunday. Cowboys are playing today, and you're here. I admire you for that. Now, what's better, saying you're a good dad or you're a good dad because? Is this your wife here? I want to make sure. Okay, your name is? Paula, okay. Paula, what's his better? Him saying, uh, I love you. Or he's saying to you, Paula, I love you because you're the best mom my kids can have. I tell you what, the way you love on them, the way you care for them, the way you provide for them, encourage and speak to them, I could not find a better mother for my children. And I admire you for that. Now, what's his better? I love you or I love you because? Yeah, or... Chad, you watch this, okay? You pay attention, okay? <laughs> Which is better, saying, you're beautiful, or you're beautiful because I love the way your hair surrounds your face and your eyes shine out from, you know? Oh, because. Yeah? <laughs> okay, you can have a good night if you listen to me, okay? I'll tell you right now, okay? Okay? And see, what happened is, every, every, when a lady looks in the mirror, she goes, What? Am I beautiful? But I say, you're beautiful because. I tell my wife, you're beautiful because. Now, my wife says, look at me. I've I'm, I'm had surgery, heart surgery. got scars in my body. I'm not the beautiful thing. I say, oh, babe, but you are the most beautiful thing. Because in you is the grace that blesses our grandchildren. In you is the love that keeps our family together. And in you is the one that provides meals that's fit for a king. And I love you because how you serve our family. Am I making sense yet? Your children at school need to know why they're significant. I'm proud of you because you sit in your chair today and you're quiet. Oh, I'm, I appreciate you because you put your toys up when you got done. What grade do you teach? Oh, Ellen. <laughs> I love you because, see, music is not my thing. I sing with feeling. I just can't imagine anybody feeling that bad, okay? So... Uh, but what happened is, you know, I appreciate the way you, you try to, you know, you want to say, I appreciate you because. Because word makes the kids step up and do better next time. And if you don't put that grace, that, do you do it every time? No, 51%. It's obnoxious when you say it every time, every day. I love you, Paula, because I love you, I love you, you know, and, and, and after a while. No, only 51%. Okay, your wife is a great mathematician. 
And you know what, guys? If we don't speak into our wives' worth and value, guess what? Some other man will come along and steal her from us because he'll say something to her that she will receive at grace. And women, same thing. We don't speak to our men. I admire you, appreciate you because another woman come along and entice them away. That protects our marriage and our children. You just don't speak it to your daughter. One of these days, there's going to be a hormonally imbalanced ape at your front door. <laughs> Is your daughter home? You know, you go, what? She's speaking something to her. And false grace is better than no grace at all. And so I'm telling you that it's very important that you speak into your children grace. That's missing today. Now, before you do any contract, any logical consequences, any rite of passage, you have to do the grace thing first. You've got to make sure their grace spirit is filled up before you start any other thing. Okay, I learned today we'll get a pen here and we're going to do valuable versus non-valuable. We're going to take all your clothes. I had a lady tell me one time, said, my daughter, which all she would have is a pair of panties left by the time we take all her clothes to goodwill. And I said, guess what? How long that will be? How long will she be with one pair? She will start taking her clothes because they're going to see how long you can hold out. And if you hold out longer than they are, they'll learn a lesson and they'll learn valuable lessons in life. All right, any questions? Any fix-it? Anywhere I need to hug it a little differently? Yeah, I, first of all, I think a rite of passage, yes. Th- th- there are books out there with ceremonies and like that, but I think your passage needs to be a significant rite of passage. I see fathers. I took my son to top of hill, and I said, you're a good kid, and we had a ceremony and came back down. No, there has to be a testing of their... They have to know inside that there is a man inside. And that's why I said they need to go on a mission field for 30 days. They need that testing, walking out, am I true? Send them out on their own. That's what many tribes do. They'll send them out in the woods. They have to survive for so many days, come back either with a bear or a lion. I was in uh, uh, Tanzania. I met the last man who did his rite of passage and was going out and killing a spear, a lion by a spear. And he was telling me all about it. He was the last man that did a rite of passage by going on his own, tracking down a lion and killing the lion with a spear and to prove to this tribe he was a man. There was something about that end. There's got to be a testing. It can't be a little simple thing. It has to be a difficult thing. When they come back off of that, then there needs the father speaking today. I claim to you that you're a man in our family and, and you can have the ceremony then. But the ceremony does not become, is not the rite of passage. It is the the, the saying to a child, you have passed the rite of passage and we recognize you as a man because of what you did. So, that makes sense? Yeah. But there's books on how to have the ceremony and stuff. Any questions? Well, you all, I appreciate you because, yes. Oh, I have a whole bunch of them, okay? They're in my book, yeah, and stuff. So, you can find out more about that, especially in the, the uh, workbook. There's a lot more stuff. And they're both in the book and the workbook, but yes. Thanks for listening to Build. Our desire is to walk with you. We hope the episode helps you better understand your kids and engage with them more intentionally. The Build conversation never ends. Visit fbcowasso.org to stay connected and discover an incredible community of people who are on this journey together. We look forward to building an incredible story with you.